you have a Bible, uh, turn to Job chapter 38. Earlier we recited the Apostles' Creed. One of my favorite singer-songwriters is named Rich Mullins. He died tragically in a car accident kind of in the prime of his uh, writing and, and career. And he wrote a song based on the Apostles' Creed, just took the words uh, right out of the Creed, and he added a few words to it. And one of the things he added was uh, a line that said, um, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. As if saying he was putting himself in the position where he would be teachable, moldable by God. We've been studying the story of Job and uh, going through it uh, piece by piece, not chapter by chapter. And what's missed when we do that oftentimes is the poetry in the narrative of the story, which is really beautiful. I'm sure it's even more beautiful if we could read it in Hebrew than it is in English. But still, the imagery that's presented there in Job is beautiful. In it, God unfolds a beauty that's like a a flower coming into bloom and Sometimes we have to be patient watching that flower over days or even weeks some of the time unfold. And I wrestled with how to conclude this this sermon series and especially the significance of God himself entering the scene. And we hear one of the most extended speeches by God recorded in the Bible. Didn't occur to me until just this morning that I don't think could be wrong. I don't think there's any place where God himself is speaking directly uh, at length for as many chapters as happens here in Job. Now, don't take that down the wrong path. That doesn't mean that we uh, use red letter Bibles in the words of Jesus or the word that, words that God himself speaks are more valuable than the other words. Because what God has told us in his word is that all scripture is God breathed. So even the words that are written by his prophets, recorded as his mouthpieces or his apostles, are God's words given to us. But still, it's something significant, something unique when we come to God himself speaking these words directly to his servant, Job. And it's important when we hear God speak to understand something of the tone that he might have been speaking in. Because when God comes and speaks, and when we, I failed to say this, what we're going to do is we're going to read all of this poetry, but I'm going to do something dangerous and interject some, some things as we read. We did that once before here recently, I believe, when we did the, uh, uh, looked at the wisdom psalm, Job 28. But when we hear God speak and let it shape us, the very truth of God, not the invention of any man, it's making us, not us making him, we give God's word the prominent place that it deserves in our lives. And as a preacher, as a teacher, it's very tempting to interject my own preferences, my own 
things that I want to highlight. We've entered into that necessarily at some times in the story of Job, but let's, uh, let's read this whole passage directly. Listen for God's tone, and I'll try to read it with that tone. It's not a tone of anger with Job. It's a tone of a personal God having a personal conversation with a person that he loves. At the very beginning of Job, God said, when Satan came to him, God said, have you considered my servant Job? Not handing him over to the lions, but entrusting his servant to this suffering for a purpose. Now, what's unsettling about what we're going to read today is that in some senses it doesn't seem to quite answer the questions we all have about the purpose of suffering. We want the big reveal at the end. We want the summary statement or paragraph that we can give to other people when they're suffering to give them their comfort. But the story of God never unfolds like that. The story of God recognizes that life is complex in God's interactions with human beings and with all of his creation is far more intricate and personal and not trite and not full of platitudes than what we're most of the time comfortable with. And so we've been sitting in this unsettled seat with Job, wondering what the purpose in all of this is. But there is purpose revealed in the end, and I want to give you this hope. Before we start to read, we need to understand one thing, and that is that Job, in the end, confesses that he's wrong. We've wrestled with this because in chapter 31, Job was presenting his case saying, I'm innocent, at least to his friends, and even to God. He was questioning God's justice. So in chapter 42, verse 6, Job says, I repent, and I sit in dust and ashes. I recognize my humanity. Let's see, as God speaks, what it is that convinces Job finally that he needs to repent. Before we start, let me pray and ask God to open our hearts to his leading today. Our God and Father, lover of our souls, knower of our every thought, need, concern. Father, would you peel back the layers of the complexity of this world to us somewhat today that we would see and hear and understand? Would you also peel away the layers of hardness on our hearts. That where we have perceived you as our enemy, we would see you again as our friend. And where we have misunderstood your word, that you would correct us and guide us in paths of right understanding and of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you gates of death have excuse me have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness have you comprehended the expanse of the earth declare if you know all this where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From, where, from whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Stop there for a second. 
Obviously, this is recounting somewhat of the creation days and asking Job, were you there when creation happened? Were you there when I've set all these things in place such that you can understand all the purposes, all the plans, all the extent of my creation? You're beginning, Job, to question my judgment, but do you have the whole picture in mind? It's popular today to question Christianity on the basis of the creation account in Genesis. I think probably some of you, some of us, even wrestle with this question. Did did God really intend the creation story to speak to us uh, practically? Did God really intend the creation story to be a scientific account of how he made the heavens and the earth? The answer to this is a more complex answer than we can get into today. But one of the fallacies that Christians are oftentimes accused of, fall into, is this idea of the God of the gaps. It's used pretty frequently. It goes something like this. In times past, we didn't understand much scientifically, and so God took a much bigger place in our minds. But as we understand more and more about creation, or excuse me, about science, about nature, (coughs) the gaps of that understanding become smaller and smaller, and so we replace God with our scientific understanding, and eventually that gap gets minuscule and goes away, and God goes away. The problem with this is pretty obvious when you really sit down and think about it and present it to somebody else. And even this text in Job points people to the greater understanding of saying, can you change the course of the stars in the universe? No matter how much we understand about nature around us and about how things work, and we'll read in a little bit about uh, how goats give birth and things that we have somewhat come to an understanding more of, there's always something more. You find one thing and then you realize ten things that you didn't know before. As... NASA and the various space explorations continue to go further and further into space. They keep seeing their their hypotheses, their theories turned upside down. And there's even surprisingly a delight by many scientists when they see something that they didn't expect. The the, uh, the, the, the space explorer that just passed by Pluto is constantly sending data back to Earth. And I saw just this week where so many of the theories they had about the surface of Pluto have been turned upside down. More than what they knew in some senses. Some dozen, they said, major things they found uh, to be different than what they presumed. How arrogant is it for us to assume that we've understood all of nature or enough of nature at any point to say that God cannot exist? Were you there when God made all these things? Now, 
The creation account in Genesis is given for a particular purpose. It shows us that creation happened with order, with purpose. It's not a full scientific reckoning of all the data. And we do it a disservice when we use it for that sake. Now I think there are valid arguments that can be made for both the young earth and old earth kind of hypothesis. And we can talk about those at another time. But the question to Job and the question to each of us here that's pressing is were you there? Were any of us there to be able to say specifically what happened and how it happened? Now with any type of investigative work we can piece together the story and sometimes the story is more compelling than other times. But if we were not there and if no one else was there either, the sons of God there, by the way, are the angels who were singing for joy. If no one else was there either, we can only depend on what we deduce from the evidence or what God has revealed to us by speaking to us. I think it is significant that God himself in this extended speech decides to rely on that creation account to give Job an understanding, a baseline of who he is, who God is, and who Job is. In fact, one of the interesting things that's happening right now in the world of apologetics, apologetics is explaining to the world, convincing the world, convincing unbelievers and also us as believers that the word of God is truth, that the gospel is true, It's an argument for the reason that you have to believe. And for a long time, that argument focused in on understanding that we are sinners and that Jesus died for your sin and He forgives you your sin. Which is an important, central, the most important part of the story. But what's happening right now with apologetics is that the, the emphasis is expanding to go back to creation in Genesis 1 through 3 and focus on that part of the story first and then to take the full story out to the end and that is that the body, physical body, will be resurrected in the end and that we will live with God forever, physical body, not just in heaven, but a new heaven, new earth, new physical reality. If we leave out the significance of that creation story, then we miss something about who God is and who we are in the process. And that is going to be my subject to the sermon next week is from Genesis 3 and how God made us and the nature of the fall and how his redemption is found in Christ Jesus, the promise of the resurrection. So come back for that one and invite others to come and it won't be uh, just a, a Job sermon again. Creation is important for us to understand that God has made everything and that we cannot understand everything. And yet, He has revealed this to us. Let's keep reading. Verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may come over you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt 
the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Still more of the creation coming in after God made all the physical sun and moon and day and night and water and land. He made the creatures. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth, do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young their youngs, young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has left the wild donkey? Who, excuse me, who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling. Keep reading a little bit. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture. And he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Stop there for a second and think about why he would present these animals and present this question. When God had made all the animals... Everything else in creation, he made human beings. Adam and Eve, male and female, after his image, he made them. He made them for a purpose, and that purpose was to tend the creation that he had made. That purpose was to be his representative, his ambassador, his, um, his caretaker of all of his creation. Human beings were different than the rest of the animals. The rest of the animals were made with love. And even those that worked the field and were domesticated were made for a purpose. But that purpose depended on the purpose of human beings who were given this purpose of tending God's creation. All these other animals with their strength and might and power and even their ability to work the field still depended on something else guiding them. But there's also a challenge here. Would those animals return to their master if their master wasn't making them do so? God is comparing human beings in their fallen state, in their sinful state, in their rebellion against God to these animals, saying, will you return to me? Or will you be like the animals who left to their own will go after their own purposes 
This is the question to Job and to all of us, the pressing question of our day. God says, I have made you and I have loved you, but will you be like the animals who have no capacity for human relationship, human responsibility, or will you be like human beings, distinct from the animals? He goes on to describe this with some other languages. Verse 13, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Job, in his accusation of God, is accusing God of being like an ostrich. See it? Job is accusing God in his parenting because he seems like he's trampled underfoot. He's accusing God of being an ostrich. Now, God questions Job in this and he shifts directions a little bit. We'll come back to this concept of is God an ostrich in a minute. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he smells the battle from afar, the thunder and the captains and the shouting. The ostrich runs away when the horse comes up. The horse smells the battle and he's itching to get into it. Both fearful and powerful creatures have been made by God. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the, earth, toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it afar off, his young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. Fairly gruesome at the end. But that progression from ostrich to horse to eagle is very intentional. The ostrich is fearful. And forgets his young. The horse is full of courage, but it's the eagle 
who cares for his young one by going to hunt for food for him and brings it back to his young and feeds the young in the nest. This is probably a bald eagle or a vulture, things that nest high in the, in the rocky crags, safe and sound. God says, I made them all. Which one would you compare me to? And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proclaim, proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Now to understand this, you have to understand who Job is. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Job was a judge. Now, a judge in those days didn't just carry a gavel. He carried a sword as well. He was the king. He was the ruler and also the judge. We divide the powers out today because this is an awesome and mighty power. But Job knew what it was to sit in that judge's seat and judge other people. And every judge knows how limited their knowledge ultimately is of even cases before them, much less all of creation and all of the things around them. And Job immediately says to God, I am, I am small. My understanding is so much more limited than yours. God goes on to say, then will I also acknowledge to you and your own right hand can save you. Job is recognizing that God has this awesome responsibility of judge and we depend on God judging rightly. We trust that justice will be done and we need to trust that because we see so many evils in the world. And we also need to understand where our place is in that judging because God has given us responsibilities for judging in different places where he's given us different dominions, our families, the elders of the church, civic leaders appointed to certain places. He goes on to describe the type of judgment he does in language that gets a little bit squeamish because he uses beast names that we aren't quite sure what to make of. Behemoth, behold behemoth, he says, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. 
His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. He let him he let him who made him bring near his sword. Sword executing justice, power over behemoth. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Now listen, this one is confusing. It's probably referring to a hippopotamus of all creatures. They lived in Egypt, in the Nile, and even in southern reaches. They weren't in the Jordan, but oftentimes scripture uses poetic language to describe a river and just uses the name Jordan to describe a river. The point being with this creature is that it can't be tamed to work the field. It can't be brought down by human beings, or at least it's very difficult to. He doesn't linger long on this. He moves from this behemoth that cannot be tamed into another creature that is even more untamable. And he says, can you draw out Leviathan, a mythical sea creature, with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Now, many people want to present Leviathan potentially as a crocodile. But I think if you read this, listen carefully, you will agree that this cannot be a crocodile. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Remember our sermon two weeks ago when Job used covenant language. Covenants, by the way, only made with human beings, not with animals. Will you play with him as a As with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Ancient times, it wasn't unusual to use doves and even sparrows for pets, for kids. What an image that your girls would play with Leviathan as a pet. Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. He's starting to picture a dragon, a mythical dragon with with the the shields, 
his back. One is so near to another that the air can come between them. That, excuse me, that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. Catch the image from the horses, by the way. The horses race into battle. The dragon, a greater horse. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. There's a story told, I believe, in the Shepherd of Hermas, an early Christian writing that was considered for canonicity to be in the Bible. It's a story that uses the phoenix as its illustration. You know, the phoenix, the mythical creature that dies and out of the fire and the ashes rises back to life, I think, every 50 years. The story, this, this book was ultimately kept out of the canon, and I think it was providential that it was kept out of the canon because the author really believed that the phoenix was real. The question could be asked of this Leviathan, is the beast really real and does it minimize or reduce the credibility of the book of Job because he's presented as real, very real. This is no crocodile or any beast that even lives in the sea now. This is referring to the Satan himself who is referred to as the beast of the sea that comes out of the sea in the book of Revelation and does battle with man and with God's angels and with God himself and ultimately is destroyed. You say, how can you determine that? It's because in ancient writings, They love to use chiasms. Chiasms start with one thing, go to something else, and then come back to the main thing. And what did the book of Job start with? But the Satan 
on the scene with God in conflict with God. And the Leviathan here is meant to say that the Satan is very real and he does battle not only with God but against man. And man, you have no power to fight Leviathan, the Satan, on your own. And here is the chief weapon that the Satan, Leviathan, uses against the sons of man. It is to lie to the sons of man the lie that Job has wrestled with the whole book. When suffering comes, God must not love you very much. When suffering comes in your life, either to you or the people you love, or even suffering that you can't explain, Satan loves to tell people, God must not love you very much. He is your enemy. But in Job, in Job we see God come directly to Job when he's fearing that God had indeed become his enemy. And God speaks with Job personally and reassures Job, I am not your enemy, I am your friend. I am not your enemy. Despite what it seems, all appearances to the contrary, I am not your enemy. I am your friend, and there's more to the story than you can possibly grasp or see or understand. And Job answers the Lord, and he says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent and dust in dust and ashes. Job, like all of us, questioned God. But when he sees God face to face, when he knows him in person and the love that he has for him, it changes everything. And God has revealed himself to each of us now by becoming human himself. Distinguishing yet again human from beast. Giving humans the dignity that they were made to have. And Jesus has restored them and redeemed them by dying for their sins so that they would not have to die forever. Death is something more than just putting somebody in the ground and us not seeing them. Death in biblical terms is separation from God. And in God becoming human... And forgiving us of our sins, God has removed what separated us from him so that we could know him and be with him forever. The restoration that we'll read of at the end here is not just Job getting all of his stuff back. It is meant to be a picture of the physical resurrection that Jesus has done and that he's promised to each of us. That we will rise again from the dead and all of the suffering that we endure in this life 
will be minuscule compared to the glory that we will experience in our resurrected bodies in the presence of Christ. Why would anybody reject this salvation that God has worked so mightily to provide to the human beings that he has created in his image? I don't know. I don't know. Except that they are believing the lies of the Satan who does this battle against them. And the story concludes with these words. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. You remember his three friends? They were acting more like the Satan, the accuser, than like God, Job's friend. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. You were once God's enemy. But God himself, Jesus, prays for you as Job did for his three friends. More than that, now that we are God's friends, he calls us to pray for God's enemies and even our own enemies as Job prays for his three friends. Because Jesus' sacrifice is offered for their sake as well. Pray that they would accept it. See God and believe. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years. And he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for this word of yours. That you have spoken to Job, but to all of us. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Thank you that you have brought good news in rescuing Job. And in rescuing the world by... Jesus' sacrifice to forgive sins 
and bring the promise of resurrection, life everlasting with you. Father, may this your word sink deep into our hearts and may we worship and praise you as we enter this holy week when Jesus did this battle with Leviathan on our behalf and conquered sin and death. We pray all this in his name. Amen.